0: CHAPTER Seven. THE STORM BEFORE THE TURBULENCE WEDNESDAY 15 JULY 1970 USS CARD UNDERWAY TO MAYPORT Reveille was piped at 0500 breakfast went down at 0600 the maneuvering watch was posted at 700 at which time the ship shifted from shore power to ship power and the officer of the deck, Ensign Winchester, shifted the OOD watch from the quarter-deck to the flying bridge. The captain, the XO, and Mr. Winthrop joined him there. The special sea and anchor detail was set at zero seven thirty. The last mooring line was dropped, and the boatswain made mate of the watch blew the long whistle blast and passed the word to shift colors. The jack and the ensign were hauled down smartly and the steaming ensign hoisted on the gaff, and the ship's call sign was hoisted on the signal bridge. The force of the engine's driving powerful screws sent a steady tremble through the ship and into the legs of those who stood on her decks. The cards steamed out of Norfolk at zero seven fifty. They cleared the sea channel increased speed. The captain was in his seat on the port side of the bridge. Mr. Winthrop and Lt. Commander McCormick were by the bridge chart table. Mr. Hooper was standing by as he was to relieve the con at 0800. Mr. Winchester, the captain called. Sir, point her south and let her eat. Aye, aye, sir. He keyed the wheelhouse toggle. Helmsman, point her south and come to zero one zero. Zero one zero, aye. He toggled the engine room toggle. Engine room, all ahead full. All ahead full, sir, aye. Zero eight hundred. Mr. Hooper relieved Mr. Winchester from the deck watch and assumed the con. Zero eight thirty. Mr. Alexander entered the wardroom, uncovered, and placed his hat in the assigned position. Pouring a cup of coffee, he turned toward the wardroom table to the officers who sat there. Say, Mr. Winchester, you were on the con when my messenger came up for some relative bearing grease? Where did he get it? From the doctor here. Yeah, I carry a few vials with me on each yearly cruise. There's always someone who comes asking for it, said the Oh, well, What is it? Sunburn ointment. I put a label on it that says relative bearing grease, used sparingly. I just came out of crypto when Murray came into Radio Central and gave the vial to Anderson, and told him he got it from the captain, who said he would be down in 30 minutes to inspect how efficiently the grease was used. Sure enough, about 30 minutes later, the captain came in. Uh, He gave Anderson and the radio crew 30 minutes to come up with a story? Oh, I bet that was a revolting development, said Mr. Goldsmith. Yeah, the captain came in and told Anderson he wanted to inspect the use of the relative bearing grease. Anderson told him the TBL transmitter had relative bearings inside, the captain said, I don't suppose you could show me. Anderson told him that he could show him, but he'd have to take the sides off the TBL and that would shut it down, which would shut down our communications. The captain said, I hope you have some left over for the next time. Anderson assured him that he did. The captain said, well then, we will not be sending messengers to the bridge in search of it. Anderson told him Murray was not sent to the bridge. Going to the bridge was his idea. Well, it worked, the captain told him. The officers laughed. Lieutenant Gruball entered just as Alexander was finishing his tale. You told him about the relative bearing grease? The officers still enjoyed the story, nodded their heads. Yeah, one of the recruit reserves asked me where I could find five feet of slack line. One boot, referring to the recent boot camp graduate, asked Mr. Hooper for six yards of shore line." said another officer. Rookie reserve hazing has always been a tradition, and all the cruises I've ever made each year, the doctor said. I was suckered into looking for relative-bearing grease. That's what started me carrying it. Lieutenant Grubal added her story. They sent me for sky hooks, left-handed monkey wrenches, bulkhead stretchers, and the like. It's all in fun. It's a lot safer than the hazing we got in college. The next thing you know, would we'll be catching a sea bat, Mr. Alexander said. Or standing a mailboy watch, the doctor added. One guy was told to go to the crow's nest and get some crow's eggs for the captain's breakfast. Of course, this guy was smart enough to realize it was a gag, so he took the opportunity to tour the ship," added Mr. Goldsmith. The doctor took a sip from his coffee cup and said, Well, all of this does serve a useful purpose, far greater than just fun for the old-timers. After a few days of wild goose chases throughout the ship, being sent to every space and every senior enlisted, they learn their way around the ship and they get used to traveling through hatches and water-tight doors officer's call came at zero nine hundred mr goldsmith reported harold hillman third class commissaryman was not on board missing movement was a serious offense in the navy i thought hillman had mellowed a bit since he was assigned to the card said mr winchester the xo turned to address mr goldsmith how is it we didn't know this before we left port well hillman is one of those guys who does not always come out of the galley for muster Apparently he failed to sign out when he went ashore, so we didn't know he was not on board. We got a radio message from shore patrol. I guess he was soused and needed some action, said Goldsmith. He was in a bar in Norfolk drinking with some marines he knew from the last ship he was on. Some bikers came in and Hillman stood up and said who's the meanest SOB in here and why am I? Bikers decided it was not going to be him, and that started a fight. Of course the marines couldn't let their buddy get beat up, so they joined in. As it happens, they were all arrested by civil authorities and thrown into civilian jail. Hillman sustained a pretty bad beating, from what I get from the police. He spent the night in the hospital and was arraigned this morning. The base police were notified, but they can do nothing until the judge decides his fate, and the fate of the Marines and the bikers. Fortunately, the bikers have had a history of barroom fighting, so the brunt of the charges was against them. So that means we'll be without Hillman's great bread for a while? I heard the ship's crew say that if they had a choice of a last meal before execution, they would ask for one of Hillman's breakfasts. I can tell you firsthand no one makes bread like Hillman, Lieutenant Gruball said. I don't know what his secret is, but there's no finer meal than Hillman's special biscuits. His own recipe for gravy and steak and eggs. No one can explain it, but some of the crew had a contest once, comparing Hillman's steak and eggs and breakfast with four other commissarymen. It was a blind test. Chief Jacquette was the officiating judge. Twenty out of twenty picked Hillman's steak and eggs, biscuits and gravy. Mr. Alexander looked up from the Navy Times paper and asked, If this guy is such a great cook, why is he cooking for the enlisted and not for the officers? The officers of the ship's company thought the enlisted had it bad enough just being stationed on the card, so at least they could do was enjoy great food, Lieutenant Grubal added. And we get some benefits of his chow. The duty officer can always count on a treat during mid-rats. Midnight rations are served from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. for night duty personnel. From what I understand, Hillman took very good care of the Marines on the ships, and I know why. Each time he got drunk on the beach, it was the Marines that saved his hide, said Gruball. Well, he's in trouble now. Missing movement, AWOL, said Mr. Winchester. I'm not so sure Captain Wills will be as lenient as the other commanding officers. This captain doesn't have a day-to-day relationship with Hillmans like we do. What did the captain say about Hillman missing movement? He has asked the Navy base to get him from the civvies and arrange transportation to Mayport. The captain will hold captain's mast on the quarterdeck as soon as he steps foot on board. Harold Hillman was a sailor's sailor. He loved his job and took great satisfaction in it. When on board, he was rarely adrift at his post. But ashore, he has a girl-in-every-port kind of sailor. He knew how to enjoy liberty. He was a ruggedly handsome man. The ladies will tell you he was good to look at, and even the men will tell you that he was a good-looking person. He's a likable chap, and gets along with everybody on board. He has never married, and doesn't speak of the family at home. That's one of the many mysteries about Harold Hillman that makes him an intriguing sort. He made First Class E-6 twice, but has been reduced to rate several times when his exploits ashore were particularly disgraceful. He has a sense of humor that makes him appear almost dangerous, and he finds humor in everything, and doesn't appear to take anything seriously. Anything, that is, except when he's on duty. The captain of the USS Kearney put him on permanent shore patrol whenever the ship pulled into port. He doesn't get into trouble when he's on duty. To give you an idea, said Mr. Goldsmith, of how well-liked he was on the Samuel B. Roberts, his division officer put him on report for some inconsequential act, and he had to face captain's mast. The captain restricted him to the ship for thirteen days. Instead of, Mr. Alexander inquired. Well, it seems they were steaming at the time. They had been at sea for three days, and they had thirteen more days to go before they reached port. So he restricted him to the ship while they were still under way. That was his punishment, said Mr. Goldsmith. I'll bet that went over big with his division officer, said Mr. Alexander with a smile. 1100. Gunner's mate 1 Phelps approached the wardroom door, knocked three wraps uncovered, opened the door, and stepped inside. Mr. Gilliam was sitting in one of the side chairs, looking over the first lieutenant locker assignments. Lieutenant Gruval was at the wardroom table, frowning over some Gitmo preparations. Both officers gave Phelps their attention. Lieutenant Gruval, I have a request from seaman-apprentice Buford Thurman. He came on board in Norfolk as part of the reserves from West Virginia. Yes? He said he refuses to take orders from a woman and insisted on seeing the captain. I told him he had to go to the chief first. The chief suggested I bring it directly to you. When I told Thurman the chief suggested he talk to his division officer, Thurman then insisted that I get an appointment to see him. The lieutenant smiled. Well, send him in. No more than ten minutes later, Thurman and Phelps were standing outside the wardroom door. Okay, said Phelps. "Knock three times. Uncover and enter. Wait until the division officer addresses you, then say what's on your mind. Thurman did as he was told. Standing in the wardroom, Thurman and Phelps were facing Lieutenant J.G. Gilliam and Lieutenant Gruball. Both were sitting side by side at the wardroom table. Lieutenant J.G. Gilliam spoke first. You want to speak to your division officer, Thurman? So speak. Thurman faced J.G. On the outside, he stifled a smile. But on the inside he was laughing now here is a real man look at those muscles this guy knows real men. he thought to himself his courage was renewed and he spoke up sir I don't take orders from no woman why not the JG asked real men don't take orders from women from what I understand real men don't do housework or wash dishes do you agree yes sir real men don't cook or wash clothes either Real men don't go grocery shopping either, do you agree? Thurman thought he had found a comrade. That's right, sir. Real men don't do women's work, and women don't do men's work. Now let's see if we understand each other, said the Lieutenant J.G. According to your definition, a real man does not do housework, cleaning, mopping, waxing, dusting, dishes, laundry, cooking, or even grocery shopping. Is that right? You get it, sir, that's right. You understand, all right. Well, Thurman? From your definition, it appears that a real man is quite helpless without a woman around, wouldn't you agree? Thurman was stumped. Uh, 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 no, no, sir. A real man can't feed himself if he won't buy groceries or can't cook. He would live in a filthy environment if he didn't clean or wash dishes or clothes. Thurman, a real man is self-sufficient and self-reliant. He does what he has to do. Okay, enough of this. Now, you wanted to speak to your division officer? Well, there she is. He moved his head and his eyes in the direction of Lieutenant Gruball. Thurman breathed in deeply. He had been hoodwinked. Lieutenant Gruball took up the line. Seaman Thurman, you refuse to take orders from Petty Officer Phelps because she's a woman. But she's also a non-commissioned officer in the United States Navy. Well, you would be pleased to know that you may not have to take orders from a woman. Thurman breathed a little easier. You have two choices. You can be pleased with yourself, knowing that you kept your manhood code and did not let a woman tell you what to do while sitting in the brig waiting for a summary court-martial on charges of refusing to obey a lawful order. Of course, the captain's mask would lead to more brig time and an undesirable discharge from the Navy. Or, you can man up and get with the program. You're not now where you came from. This is the United States Navy. And you're on a U.S. Navy warship. And we take orders from those who have earned the right to be in charge. She paused to see if it was sinking in. Apparently, Thurman realized he was over his head. Thurman, some men whose manhood is not intact are threatened by women in positions of authority. Now I look at you and I find it hard to believe that you're one of those immature men who can allow his manhood to be threatened by a woman. Thurman glanced at Lieutenant J.G. Gilliam. His thoughts began to calculate the situation. This woman outranked him. If he can go along with this setup, then I guess I can too. He shrugged a glance at Phelps and then at Lieutenant J.G. Gilliam and then back to his division officer. My manhood is intact. I guess I can take orders from my supervisor, even if she is a woman. Good. Then we'll have no more of this kind of thinking. Are we square on this? Yes. Yes, ma'am, Mr. Gilliam said. Yes, ma'am. Okay, said the lady officer, you will go to your duty station and do what needs to be done. After Chow, this evening, you will be confined to your rack. At twenty hundred you will report to the duty officer for muster. You are on restriction until zero seven hundred tomorrow. You may go now. Phelps, who was standing next to him, discreetly tapped him on the forearm, and leaned in closer with a whisper. About face, she said to Thurman. She and Thurman did an about face, and both headed toward the door. Ten hundred. The bridge was notified of a notice to mariners, hurricane alert, heavy seas, and he gave the location and the direction as coming across from Florida, hugging the coastline. It was forecasted to travel due north up the coastline and die out before reaching the Chesapeake Bay. Ten thirty. Mr. Hooper had the deck and noted that at ten thirty hours, a lower than normal barometer reading, but no sign of rough seas, Mr. Gillian entered the bridge. He approached the OOD. There's a strange feeling in the air, Frank. What's the barometer reading? You're correct, Foster. I have seen this a few times before. The barometer dropping with no sign of rough seas. Those times have never turned out favorably. There's a storm brewing somewhere. I saw the same phenomenon in the Falklands. I had the con. Within two hours of a constant falling barometer, we were up to our ears in swells. I spent my youth on my father's fishing fleet. Several times this happened and we rigged for heavy seas, even though there was no indication of it at the time. I called for rigging for heavy seas, and they all thought I was crazy. And they did it, and after that, no one questioned my decisions. Mr. Hooper sent the messenger to the captain with a note that read, Desron W.X., officer, wrong. Seen this before. Barometer indicates we are in the path of a storm. Recommend rig for heavy seas. Wind and rain. Gilman concurs. At 1100, mess gear was sounded. At eleven-fifteen, the word was passed to knock off ship's work. Eleven-twenty. The captain retired to his cabin. Eleven-forty. The noon meal was piped down and the crew went to chow, according to each department's schedule. Twelve-hundred. Lieutenant Sterling took the deck and the con, relieving Mr. Hooper. Keep a weather eye out on the barometer, George. I predict we're in for some major storm, dangerous seas and heavy rain. The Fleet Weather Service said it will stay well to the west of us if we just steer our steady course she said we'll be in no problem i put the predictions and recommendations in the log i've seen this situation several times before growing up in a deep sea fishing family thirteen hundred the order for turn two and continuous ship's work was piped the seas were getting rougher and the skies beginning to take on an ominous color the new guy reserves had been at sea long enough to realize that they had some work to do, getting their sea legs with the rolling motion of the ship at sea. Many would spend the first day in the head driving the porcelain bus. Actually, the facilities were stainless steel. It was an ugly sight, but almost all sailors went through it at some point in their time at sea. For some, it lasted several days, and they ended up in sick bay. For the ones that did not make it to the head, they learned very quickly that the real sailors clean up after themselves. If they did not do so on their own, they did it under intimidating supervision of every sailor in the area. Although there were a few who had compassion for those new reserves, with no sea experience, there were far and few to be found. thirteen thirty. Captain made rounds throughout the ship to ensure all was secure. fourteen hundred. The captain's last stop was at the radio shack, where he intended to catch up on the latest news and weather bulletins. Radioman first class Anderson, Radioman striker, seaman Franklin, and third-class radioman Matthews were busy with the rigors of the communications system on board a ship at sea. It was a routine but complicated task, bringing up the fleet broadcast systems for ships in the southern sector of the United States, receiving messages and passing them along. "'Is this coffee ready, Anderson?' he said as he entered the coded doorway. "'It should be, Captain. It's been cooking since last Tuesday.'" The Radio Shack coffee was one of the ongoing jokes on the card. There is a story that a guy named Murphy is in charge of the coffee mess in the shack. No one has ever met Murphy. The radio men take turns making the coffee, but then they all claim it was Murphy that made it, so that no one will be accused of making bad coffee. The captain remembered visiting the radio shack a few days before setting sail for Norfolk, when a radio and striker, who apparently had just come from completing some dirty job, came into the shack and announced that he had just finished working aloft, cleaning up the antenna. Half the yak of the antenna was on my clothes and in my face, not to mention a few seagulls making bombing runs on my head. Is there any other disgusting task you want me to do, Chief? R.M. 1, Anderson said. Have a cup of Murphy's Coffee, Pellington, and take a load off. Now, Anderson, he said, I'll do just about anything you want me to do. But don't ask me to have a cup of Murphy's Coffee. The captain looked at a cup. He chuckled to see that someone had tied a pair of scissors by a string to the spout, with a note that read, Good to the Last Peace, and it was signed, Murphy. The captain was pleased to see that it was hot. He took a careful sip. This coffee is terrible, Anderson. How often do you guys clean this pot? Murphy cleans it every time it's empty, Captain. When was the last time it was empty? I don't recall it ever being empty, Captain. The captain smiled and shook his head. He enjoyed the humorous banter of the crew. He pressed a button on the intercom. This is the captain. Is my steward in the wardroom? Yes, captain, Ken reply. Have him bring up some fresh coffee to Radio Central from the officer's mess. Aye, aye, sir. He keyed the intercom. Bridge, this is the captain. I'll be in Radio Central. Bridge, aye. RM1 Matthews sat at the CW circuit with the headphones copying Morse coded message. Seaman Franklin was routing teletype traffic. The other members of the radio crew were busy setting up frequencies that would be used in the new Zulu during its Time day, which would take place in six hours. They prepared for the 2359 and 000 changeover to the computers to the new Zulu day paperwork. He brought up WWV Fort Collins, Colorado on the computer's receiver and listened to the clock ticking over the circuit. Finally, the ticking stopped and a strong male voice said, This is WWV. Fort Collins, Colorado. When the tone returns, the time will be... Zero, 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 zero. There was a loud three-second tone, and the radio man punched two red buttons with the thumbs of his right hand and left hand, and waited. The ticking resumed. After a few seconds, the teletype kicked into action, and the fleet broadcast information was printing out. The captain and radio man Anderson read the news and shared their comments about the news items while they drank officer's coffee from cups bearing the ship's seal poured from a real coffee-pot, complimented by key-dunk. In the meantime, the conning officer was well aware the seas were becoming increasingly turbulent. The helmsman reported difficulty in holding the ship's head on a steady course, claiming he was constantly spinning the wheel from right-standard to left-standard rudder in an effort to keep her from yawing. The barometer continued to fall, and the deck officer observed a noticeable cross-well. 1430 The conning officer called the captain to the bridge. The captain put down his paper and stood up. Well, Anderson, enjoy the coffee and the gee dunks. It seems I'm needed on the bridge. It looks like we're in for some very bad weather. You saw the weather reports. They all claim it's not going to come near us. But Mr. Hooper and Mr. Gilliam think differently. The captain entered the bridge for a first-hand look at the conditions. Mr. Winthrop entered a few minutes later. "mr Hooper seems to think we'll be in for a storm if we steer our present heading," said Lieutenant Sterling. "Yes, he told me that this morning and then again in a message before being relieved," the captain said. "He has a lot of experience with weather, being a northern fisherman. If I had to bet on the weather office or a gut feeling from an experienced mariner, I'd go with the gut every time," said mr Winthrop. After conferring with Comrades Desron thirty four on the Lansing, the captain gave the order to continue steaming on the present course, since the storm is reportedly six miles to the west, and was now heading north-northwest, away from the squadron. The captain decided to confer one more time with Mr. Hooper, before altering the course set by Comres Desron. Off in the distance were some fearsome black clouds, boiling up with strong winds, producing great agitation on the ocean surface. It appeared as though the water from the ocean was being pulled into those black clouds, and then forced back down into the sea with fierce roaring and splashing. The captain entered the wardroom and found Mr. Hooper in the leather chair, reading a novel. Over his head was a painting of the card in a stormy sea. Robert Mills commissioned the painter, a private citizen, as a symbolic representation of the condition of the ship when he took command. On Mr. Hooper's left was a side table. It was bolted to the deck. On the table was a pilot's wheel lamp, and a cup-holder, securely fastened to the table. In the cup-holder was a steaming cup of what once contained wardroom coffee. The front of Mr. Hooper's shirt was soaked and stained with that coffee. He looked up at the captain with an embarrassed smile. (laughs) You would think I'd know better by now, wouldn't you? So, Mr. Hooper, your experience tells you that we'll be in for a storm in spite of all the naval weather-guessers. It's my opinion, Captain. I might be wrong, but I don't think so. I'm not that familiar with the area off the coast of Cape Hatteras. I know it's infamous for being frequently struck by hurricanes and frequent storms and heavy seas that move up the east coast of the United States. I know about its turbulent water, that many ships have been lost in this area. Mariners call it the graveyard of the Atlantic. Like I say, I'm not that personally familiar with this area, but I do know storms, and I believe we're in for some mighty rough seas. Dangerous seas? dangerous seas how much time before the onslaught mr hooper consulted his watch okay it's 1440 now the conditions have been steadily deteriorating about every 15 minutes i would say if it's going to turn and come after us um it'll be about 2 hours maybe less very well pass the word i want to see all officers and chiefs in the wardroom at 1500 the sea state was getting worse Normal movements on board were becoming increasingly more difficult to continue ship's work on the deck. OOD Sterling keyed the intercom to the wardroom. Is the captain there? Yes, Lieutenant Sterling, what is it? Captain, I recommend we secure from ship's work and rig for heavy seas. The captain pressed the intercom. Thank you, Lieutenant, we're working on doing just that. I'll let you know. Aye, sir. Fifteen hundred. The officers had returned to the wardroom and took up their place The five chiefs filed into the wardroom and took their chairs around the perimeter of the room. The captain entered and all stood to attention. As you were, he said, as he moved to the coffee nook to pour a cup. He smiled at himself. He had just witnessed Mr. Hooper's spill and realized as much as sailors enjoy coffee, heavy seas was no time to have a cup. He turned to face his leadership crew and leaned against the counter. He flipped the switch to the bridge, radio, and CIC. Bridge, Radio CIC, this is the captain. I want you all to hear this, so listen up. He turned back to the wardroom participants. We are now at sea state seven and we're experiencing high winds with moderate to near gale force. Mr Hooper and Mr Gilliam believe we may get this storm in spite of all we can do. I concur. So just to be on the safe side, I want every department to rig for severe weather and heavy seas. Let's be prepared in case the storm overtakes us. After the evening meal, when the word is passed to continue ship's work. I want all ammo, water, and other commodities stowed as low in the ship as possible to provide more ballast, the officers-in-chief took notes. All officers-in-chief will make a thorough inspection of spaces under their supervision to ensure that we are rigged for heavy seas. Heavy seas required that all items not bolted down had to be placed in a lockable storage bin or lashed down with line. This was especially true in the galley, with all these free pots and pans and utensils lying around. The sudden movements of the ship in response to the syncopation of the ocean waves will throw any free object against a bulkhead or floor, that includes the sailors on board. There was other information passed and suggestions made by the Chief, all of which the Captain approved. Chief Leon Jaquette suggested the galley prepare sandwiches for the crew, instead of trying to cook during the storm. I agree, Chief. If Mr. Hooper is right, we'll be riding this one for a while, and I want sandwiches delivered to workstations to keep up the crew's strength and morale, and make sure the galley has plenty of bug juice and fresh water on hand. Some of you may think we're a bit premature, but I believe in prudent precautions, especially when you have recommendations from experienced personnel. The captain spoke into the open intercom to the bridge. Bridge passed a word to batten down the hatches. 1521. Batten down the hatches, aye, sir. The duty boats made of the watch key the 1MC. Now all hands knock off ship's work and rig assigned spaces for severe weather and heavy seas. Now about and down the hatches, close and seal all watertight doors. Rigging for high seas meant each crewman had a specific task to do in their assigned area and securing anything that was not welded to the ship. Items were stowed in lockers, doors were shut and locked. Items too large for storage were lashed down so they would not be moved during the turbulent movement of the ship. Everything liquid was sealed in containers. Everyone made provision for their own safety. By making sure they had lashings for tying themselves to the workstation. The ship was rocking and pitching so much that no one could move around unless they were holding on to some secured structure. Most of the crew remained in their spaces. Those on-duty stations were strapped in. No experienced mariner takes the sea lightly. The waters of the globe, while at one moment may be peaceful and serene, can in another moment become a terrible, malevolent ferocity, a deadly beauty exuding some profound and fearsome mystery. Few things are as frightening as being tossed about and pummeled helplessly in the grip of uncontrolled, unbridled power, where there is no stable foundation, no defense against the strength of the wind and the great walls of irresistible force. The navigator reported twenty-foot swells and cross-swells. The barometer had dropped to three o point five o, sixteen hundred. Bridge log entry. Lieutenant Grubal assumed the duties of OOD and the con, relieving Lieutenant Sterling. We're steaming on a course as before. The barometer reading was thirty fifty a few minutes ago. Now it's thirty forty and falling. We have twenty foot swells, sometimes going to thirty feet and occasional cross swells. We have slowed to twelve knots in order to maneuver through the seas. Wind variable at thirty miles per hour. The rain began twenty minutes ago and suggests it will gain in velocity as the barometer is slowly but steadily falling. The main battery of the storm is still west, although it is now headed south-southeast. Thank you, Lieutenant. Now, is there any good news? Yes, you will be pleased to know that the ship is in good hands. The deck officer is Lieutenant Gruball, and your navigator is Lieutenant Commander McCormick, who is presently in the chart room with Mr. Winthrop. 16.15. Sixteen fifteen, the Captain entered the bridge area. The boatswain's mate of the watch keyed the one m c and announced the Captain is on the bridge. Good afternoon, ladies, he said as he gripped the heavy sea's handles welded to the bulkhead at the entrance of the companionway. Captain they said in unison, We're steaming as before, Captain. Twelve knots due south. We conclude a class seven sea state with fresh gale. We hoisted the gale warning pennant. Thank you, Lieutenant. You still have the con, and the deck. Aye, sir. 1635. The bridge intercom clicked. Bridge radio. Captain, we just got word the storm has suddenly turned and is now heading northeast, directly in our path, sir. CIC confirms. We have another message coming to you by radio central messenger, one you will need to sign for. A radio messenger appeared from the gangway. Here he is now. Stand by. Message from the Lansing meteorologist, Captain. Needed. From Reserve Commander Destroyer Squadron 34 aboard USS Lansing, USS Card, USS Roberts, USS Granger, report storm and your vicinity. Should be considered as renegade, constantly changing direction, and picking up wind velocity. Storm may reach sea state 10 or 11. whole gale to violent storm. If storm overtakes you, expect extended hours. A very large amount of airborne spray, severely reduced visibility, exceptionally high winds, and dangerous seas. Be advised. Lieutenant Commander McCormick stepped onto the bridge. Extended hours? That means they have no idea what the storm is doing, said the captain. Is there a reply, captain? said the messenger. Roger the transmission and tell them we plan to steer clear of the storm. Mac, I want an after-steering watch in case conditions create a problem at the helm. Washington and Edmund are there now, sir. They should be reporting in any minute now. Bridge after steering is manned and ready. Very well. I hope you secured that set of barbells down there. Those things will kill you. We secured them, sir. If they get loose, they'll be the least of our worries. Okay, I want you to check in with the bridge every fifteen minutes. After steering, I. Seventeen hundred. The card was now encountering torrential rain and increasingly higher wind velocity. But the storm stayed clear enough to maintain the scheduled heading. The torrent made it impossible to see more than a cable's length in any direction. Lt. Gruball noted the low visibility watchstanders as they strained to see and hear any potential threat to their ship. The pitch of the ship created difficulty in maintaining balance. The card rose, then plummeted, taking white foam over her bows and washed down the foredeck. Captain, I recommend that we steer a course east-southeast to move away from the storm. The barometer is now steady at, uh, 29.2. I agree, Lieutenant. She sent the word to the helmsman with the new course readings. The captain's expression changed to deep concern as he looked across the sea at the ominous colors, swirling clouds, and precipitation. The atmospheric pressure created a foreboding feeling that went deep into one's chest. He stared forward as he spoke to the duty Quartermaster, who was standing on the port lookout balcony. Quartermaster passed the word that all hands are to put on life jackets. No one is to go topside without permission from their chief or division officer, except for those on the bridge, and call Mr. Winthrop to the bridge. The captain wanted his best navigator available at a time like this. 1800 The first dog watch began. Mr. Gilliam took the con, as scheduled. He was qualified to con a ship, but since he had not driven the card, Mr. Falk was assigned to assist him. Lieutenant Sterling gave him the status. We're steaming on a course east-southeast. Barometer reading is 28.40 and falling. We have 30-foot swells, sometimes going to 35 to 40 feet, with occasional cross swells. We have slowed to 8 knots in order to maneuver through the seas. Wind variable at 48 to 53 knots. I estimate a sea state of 10. We have very high waves, overhanging crests. The signalman has hoisted the storm-warning pennant. The bridge crew was strapped in and holding on to anything that was welded to the ship in order to keep their footing. The helmsman was lashed to the stanchion in order to maintain control of the wheel. Lieutenants Rubell and Sterling went below to their stateroom. The captain joined Mr. Gilliam and Mr. Falk at the bridge. The noise of the raging sea and wind was deafening. Lieutenant Gilliam! shouted the captain. I will take the con. You reclaim the deck. Aye, aye, sir, said Gilliam, as he moved aside and let the captain move nearer the windscreen. Mr. Gilliam shouted to be heard above the freight train-like sounds of the wind and the waves. We slowed to eight nods, Captain. I don't think we can outrun it. Sir, I recommend we head into the storm and ride it out. The captain glanced in the direction of Mr. Hooper. I concur, Captain. It was getting rough now. I agree, Lieutenant, said Mills order the course to zero two zero and all hands clear the deck duty boatswain mate passed the word helmsman come to zero two zero keep her heading into the wind the one M C came alive with a husky manly voice now all hands clear the decks rig the ship for high seas nineteen hundred the wind was fifty five knots lieutenant commander mccormick entered the bridge the card was rolling and reeling and rocking violently and footing was difficult The tell-tale haze of rain advanced across the uneven swells, hiding the horizon, and surged over the bow and boiled along the decks like a raging river and a deluge of torrential rain. The rain lashed down like needles against the crew standing on the card's flying bridge and splashing up from the steel deck, soaking their shoes and pants-legs. Great plumes of seawater rolled over and into the weather decks, splashing its bulky, heavy water against the ship's structures and to the gunwells, and gushing out again in a white foam and raging currents down the outside passages. There was considerable tumbling of waves with heavy impact. Twenty hundred Bridge Log Entry. Estimate Sea State 11 on Buford Scale. Very high waves, overhanging crests. Large patches of foam from wave give the sea a white appearance. Large amounts of airborne spray reduced visibility. Second dog watch commenced. Lieutenants Gilliam and Falk were relieved by Captain Mills. Lookout secured due to the weather conditions. The captain declared hurricane conditions. We hoisted the hurricane warning pennants. In the pilot house our helmsman Fraser and Gilman. Quartermaster striker Smidlap, Lieutenant Winthrop, and Lieutenant Commander McCormick, and Captain Mills are on the bridge. 2055 the rain was blowing horizontal and visibility was about 100 yards. The wind gauge showed 63 knots and was howling so loudly it was difficult and sometimes impossible to hear anyone speak. The bridge was 42 feet above the waterline. The radar dome and antenna were 100 feet above the waterline. Seawater was washing across the bridge and at times when the ship was in the trough it appeared as though the water was higher than the antenna. The captain ordered the bridge watch to go to the pilot house. It was crowded, but it afforded some protection against the rain and the wind. The boatswain mate keyed the 1MC. The officer of the deck is shifting his watch from the flying bridge to the pilot house. The captain is in the pilot house. 20.30 Bridge log entry. Estimate Sea State Buford 11. The conning crew secured themselves inside the pilot house. 21.35 The ship shuddered as the entire forecastle plunged beneath the surface burying the forward gun mount in the watery grave. Then she pulled herself up and out of the raging brine as streaming waters drained from the deck's guns, and aft past the torpedoes and depth charges pouring out into the sea astern. 2050. Bridge log entry. Sea State 12. Hurricane force. Hurricane warning lights were illuminated. The boatswain made announced the card was taking 40-degree rolls, a fearsome situation. "'Say, Mac, do you recall the maximum roll the cart is designed to take?' asked the captain. "'The engineering reports say we can recover from a 72-degree roll, Captain.' "'Was that report adjusted after the radar dome retrofit on the main mast?' "'Yes, Captain. Even with the top-heavy mast, the ship is countered to recover from a roll of 72 degrees.' "'I hope that report is correct, because I got a feeling we're going to find out if these swells continue to rise.' He turned to the helmsman. Keep us into the wind. I ice sir. turbulent sea was relentless in its punishment of the little 308-foot ship. The D was a tough, stable little vessel, well-designed for heavy seas. Many times the card was standing on end with its bow out of the water, and the depth charges submerged. Another swell pulled the fantail out of the water and submerged the bow. It stood on end for what seemed to be five minutes. It was actually more like ten seconds. She scooped up a mass amount of sea, as her bow once again pulled to the surface. The sound of the wind and the rain, like an oncoming freight train, ran over the ship in seemingly unended, relentless assault, rolling side by side and rocking fore and aft. Oncoming swells crashed in the forward hull with a loud bump that felt like it was hitting large rocks. Sometimes the crashing of the sea exploded sprays of powerful gushes flying in all directions each onslaught was followed by climbing a giant wave standing the ship on its stern with the stem out of the water and then falling into the trough the wave created standing on its head with the screws out of the water the bow plunging into the green and white swirling sea without resistance from the sea the screws would race wildly causing the governors on the propeller shafts to slow the revolutions if the governor did not slow the shafts the generators and drive motors would shut down Then they would have to go through a restart procedure to bring the generators back online and then start the electric motors that drove the screws, all while wallowing in seas without steering or forward control. Situations like that can sink a vessel. Another mountainous wave lifted the craft higher and higher, then swiftly abandoning its purpose, dropping her twenty feet into an abyss with bone-shattering sudden stop landing her back on her beam. Then there was no respite. Once again the watery hand lifted the bow upward and dropping her bow downward once again, lifting the drive propellers out of the water. Waves came crashing over the forward gun mount and splattering against the pilot house, sending shock waves through the ship. Everyone was strapped into a position and had braced themselves between two bulkheads. 2210 The Captain keyed the intercom. Radio, pilot house. Radio, I. Send a message to Comrade Desron on the Lansing. Tell him we're adjusting our course to accommodate the storm. Radio I. 2215. The intercom came alive in the pilot house. Pilot house, engine room. Go ahead. Engine room is experiencing heavy leaking through the air intakes. Water is threatening the electrical switchboard. We're doing what we can to keep it from shorting out. The air intakes supply the engine room with fresh air. Since all the hatches of the lower decks are inside and entered from the top side down, they are usually dogged with watertight integrity. Very well, keep us advised. Do you need any further assistance? Negative, sir. 2235. The engine room reported they managed to hook up some hoses from the bilges to pump water out of the engine room. Don't know how much longer we can keep this up without leaking. 2245. The barometer dropped to 27.20. 2300. The barometer dropped to 26.20. A great swell lifted the bow up in the air, rolling along beneath the vessel and then dropping it into its trough. Everyone was strapped into their positions. One moment one is walking on the bulkhead, at another their feet on the deck, and other times their feet were dangling in mid-air. It was a frightening experience, but the crew took heart, believing the officer of the con was an experienced tin-can mariner and knew when to turn the ship and how much. 23.20 The roar of the powerful wind and the wild sea continued to buffet the ship as all hands held on and adjusted the surges that manipulated it at will. 23.59 Bridge Log Entry Captain determined the storm was too powerful to relieve the con, helmsman, or quartermaster watch. In the fury, the pilot-house door opened, and the startled crew inside jerked their attention to the door as wind and water rushed in. Boatswain Mate First Class Furman entered, struggling to keep the door from flying open. He managed to get inside and close the door with the help of Mr. Winthrop. Furman leaned hard against the door to keep it from bursting open, as the line harness around his torso served to prevent the door from closing completely. "'What are you doing here?' the captain's tone was unusually harsh. "'Orders were that no one's to be on the weather decks during the storm. I was just checking the weather decks to make sure all was secure. The lifeboats are rarely checked.' and they could come loose during strong wind, said Furman, apparently not disturbed by the heated reprimand tone. I noticed the tarp was coming loose from the motor whaleboat. If it blows off, the ship continues its fifty-degree rolls. It will fill up with seawater, Remain difficult or impossible to recover the roll that severe. I tried to secure it myself, but I can't. I need help. Furman, we're at hurricane force winds and sea. How are you getting about? asked Lieutenant Commander McCormick. I have a tether to the O2 railing and the gig hoist and the pilot house hook. You manage to do all these connections yourself in the torrential rain? Hey, that's part of my job description. Good sea legs. I'll go, Mr. Winthrop said. Furman unwrapped another line he had around his shoulders and chest and made a harness for Mr. Winthrop. Together they ventured into the night, against driving rain, heavy water surging over the weather decks, the treacherous winds and the abrupt jerking of the ship and the grip of elements that constantly tossed it about. The quick and hard pitching and rolling of the ship against the Tempest further complicated their short trek to the endangered lifeboat. They held on to the tethered line and to each other. Just as they reached the boat, a sharp pitch to starboard threw them against the underside of the boat. Mr. Winthrop sustained deep gash over his forehead. The blood rushed in torrents from the cut, but the wind and the rain washed it from his eyes. You have a cut on your forehead, Furman shouted, to be heard over the raging sound. I'm okay, let's get it tied down, Winthrop shouted back. Using the tether on the hoist, they managed to pull themselves up to the tie-down hooks. The Tarp was flapping at such a high rate. Getting over the loose ends long enough to thread them through the eyelets was difficult. Several times the tarp escaped their grasp and slapped against their hands, arms, and face, stinging and bruising. Foreman hand-signaled Mr. Winthrop to hold the ends while he tied them secure. That done, the two lowered themselves down to the deck and began their trek back to the pilot-house. A sudden pitch threw Mr. Winthrop against the bulkhead, rendering him unconscious. Furman lifted him up by the harness, and after struggling with the weight of the unconscious officer and the torrents of the weather, he managed to get the pilot-house door open and up the five-step ladder. Lieutenant Commander McCormick and the captain aided with holding the door and retrieving the gallant sailors to the relative safety of the inside. Again, Furman braced himself against the door, with his feet against the stanchion. Lieutenant Commander McCormick pressed his handkerchief against the navigator's wound. We'd better bring the doctor up here. We'll never get him to sick bay, the captain said. I'll go, Furman volunteered. He exited the pilot house, and like a mountain climber, he detached his tether and retached it to another source, in other places, as he made his way down the ladder. At the foot of the ladder, he disconnected the tether and attempted to tie it to a D-handle welded to the bulkhead beside the door. A torrent of seawater hit him dislodging his feet from the deck and lifting him sideways as he grabbed the ladder with a hand and the D-handle with the other hand. With all his strength, he pulled the line through the D on the bulkhead and the D-ring on his life vest. Now stable, he ventured to unlatch the watertight door. He pushed it open and disconnected the line from the vest. Gripping the watertight door and the opposite bulkhead, he pulled himself into the skin of the ship. Like a roll of lava, water poured through the doorway, dislodging the sailor's footing. He pushed his feet hard against the inside bulkhead. With all the force he could muster, he pushed the door closed. Furman knew the ship so well that almost total darkness made little difference. He picked up the interior phone and called the wardroom. The doctor was there, and after much jostling about, he managed to meet Furman at the hatch that they would give him access to the weather deck, and the ladder leading to the pilot house. Furman connected his tether to the doctor and with powerful arms developed over the years of working on the deck force, he assisted him outside and up the ladder and into the pilot-house. Mr. Winthrop was conscious now, sitting on the deck with his back against the bulkhead. Mr. McCormick had used the navigator's harness to secure him to the bulkhead, using the live-secure handles welded in place for just such an occasion. You're going to need stitches in that gash, Mr. Winthrop, but not here and not now. These butterfly bands should hold you until after the storm. "'Is it bad, Doc?' asked Mr. Winthrop. "'It's a foot deep. "'When I open it, I can see the back of your skull. "'You know there's nothing in there?' Okay, "'Okay, I need a doctor, not a comic. "'You'll be okay.' "'How is it you're able to get around outside in the weather like this, Furman?' asked the doctor. Fourteen years of sea legs outside on D.E.'s, he responded. "'Captain Mills clapped him on the shoulder. "'Well, you did well by the car tonight, Furman,' he turned to his X.O., with a half-smile and with his best cockney accent, he said, An extra ration of rum for the lad, number one. Aye, Captain, sir, an extra ration it be, then. I'm just a humble, able-bodied seaman, just doing me duty, sir. Mr. Winthrop was pressed against the bulkhead, and his legs pushed hard against the stanchion, holding the bandage on his head with one hand, and holding on to the steady bar with the other. He smiled and shook his head. May I remind you there's an injured officer over here, he said, feigning jealousy. The captain turned his attention to the injured officer, then again to the XO. An extra ration of rum for the injured officer, number one. Just one, sir? Right you are, number one. Make it two. Right, cap'n, sir. It be two rations for the officer. Stry to why. Dr. Johnson breathed a big smile and shook his head. Furman spoke again. I appreciate your appreciation, captain, but I was just making sure I had a ship under my feet instead of water. It is a case of self preservation. But few could have done what you did, said the captain. twenty three fifty nine. The storm was too powerful to relieve the con, helmsman, or quartermaster watch. The only good news came from the engine room. They had shored up the leak and were managing well. CHAPTER seven. Executive assessment. Weathering the storm and staying seaworthy. The organization is the entity that provides the jobs for the crew. It is the entity that offers the prospects for a future for all concerned. The organization must be preserved and must weather the storms and the turbulent times. When the storms are abated, the organizations that made it through will once again provide products for customers and jobs for the community. The ocean is a fitting metaphor for the human experience. The sea is the strangest and most mysterious of God's creations. Down through the ages, the sea has been a mistress and a murderer. Like life, the sea can be unpredictable. No experienced mariner takes the sea lightly. The waters of the globe, while at one moment are peaceful and serene, can in a moment become a terrible, malevolent ferocity, a deathly beauty exuding profound and fearsome mystery. Few things are as frightening as being tossed about and pummeled helplessly in the grip of uncontrolled, unbridled power, where there is no stable foundation, no defense against the strength of the wind and the great walls of irresistible force. One can navigate over the sea, in the sea, and under the sea. As in life, one can protect against the predictable elements that threaten us. We can enjoy the voyage when all is well and learn the lessons of life as the inexorable conditions of our lives introduce us to new and different adversaries and new adventures and new experiences. Like life, sometimes inviting, sometimes forbidding, sometimes encouraging, sometimes foreboding. But one thing you can be sure of is that short-lived interludes of Pacific are followed by fury, sometimes short, and sometimes prolonged. There is a lesson here for all of us. Though you may be taking on high seas, though your frail craft seems to be in danger of sinking, don't give up. Head into the waves, into the wind, and stay the course set for those turbulent conditions. Remember, you are not alone. You have a crew and they are properly trained they will come through for you there is a famous proverb that states a ship like a business organization when in turbulent times must not focus on being on course it must focus on being seaworthy when a manager is experienced turbulent times it seems it would be no opportunity to assess the resources available the mindset of the manager in high seas is directed toward the protection of the organization and the crew. This would be the time to include others in the analysis and recommendations, rather than deal with it alone. Of course, the decisions must be made by the chief executive, as there will be risks involved. This is the time when a well-developed and practiced what-if plan pays off. We have witness here, How the preparations for heavy seas indicated an effective what-if plan, with the exception of missing the tie-down on the motor whale boat, it worked. The captain chose to prepare the ship for engaging a storm, based on Mr. Hooper's opinion, even though there was no evidence to show the official Navy weather report was wrong. In turbulent times, you surround yourself with competent, experienced personnel, and you listen to them. Of course, one would require evidence of past experience when taking someone's word for a recommendation that carries such a risk. Boatswain mate first-class Furman chose to go out on the weather deck to inspect the motor whaleboat boat and the lifeboats during the most ferocious time of the storm, in direct violation to the captain's orders. No doubt, he thought about the storm preparations by his deck force and doubted the inexperienced sailors would have thought about the consequences of sea water filling the motor well boat. He should have inspected it before securing the deck force. A dedicated employee with a personal investment in the job and the organization would have taken the action Furman took. They should be rewarded for the action they took to correct the error rather than be punished for the error. There are certain conditions when one should take a life threatening risk in order to confirm something is secure or to correct a condition. Those conditions exist when a possible devastating event may or may not be avoided. No doubt you noticed that the various departments were in constant contact with the bridge reporting on conditions in that department. In some cases, their report required some decision or permission from the captain, and in other instances, it was just to keep the con officer informed. Was this a nuisance, or was it a necessary activity? Even though there was a qualified con officer and navigator on the bridge, the captain called Mr. Winthrop to assume the navigator duties. This was not an affront to those officers on duty. Other managers should realize that when in turbulent times you want your best people in positions where training, experience, and savvy are needed. Seaman Thurman refused to take orders from Petty Officer Phelps because she was a woman but she is also a non-commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy. No doubt you have encountered people who refuse to perform a task because of some strange personal conviction or because they believe the way they were trained was superior. They must be confronted and informed of the organization's policies for hiring competent people, no matter their gender, their race, religion, or handicap. They will get with the program or get out. There is no room for the dissension that results from a negative behavior toward anyone, especially toward the organization's management personnel. The Navy has a tradition of sending rookies on wild goose chases. They are sent to get some non-existent item. Each person to whom they are sent sends them somewhere else. Eventually, the rookie either realizes what's going on, or their boss puts an end to that trick. While the veterans get a kick out of jerking the new guy around, It has a purpose greater than just fun for the old-timers. After a few days of wild goose chases being sent to every space and every senior enlisted, they learn their way around the ship, and they get used to traveling through shin knocker hatches and watertight doors. While this is one way to do it, the organizations need to have a thorough orientation of new employees and then... They are entered into a three to six month training time where they are brought up to speed and trained to do the job. They are tested during the training time and those who cannot pass the test should be either sent back through the training and retest or they should be terminated. Hillman is a cook, a commissaryman. He is very good at his job. In fact, he is the best there is on the job he does. He knows how to do other jobs in his department and does not hesitate to jump in and make things right. He is well-liked by all the shipmates. The problem is, his outside-the-job activities often create a problem for his boss and others in the unit. Action must be taken to bring such persons with this problem in line, or they must be terminated. Regardless of how good an employee is at their job, their problems will affect others negatively and result in a loss of credibility for management. Did you notice that when the OOD, or con officer, was relieved, there was a definite procedure for passing information that included some specific items? You will also notice that there is an underway bridge log where specific information is logged. Such procedures will solve a lot of discovery problems when the oncoming supervisors or managers have a formal information passing procedure. Perhaps an organizational or department logbook would be beneficial for recording events. The captain demonstrated his confidence in Mr. Hooper when he chose to prepare the ship for engaging a storm that the expert said would not be a factor. The captain knew Mr. Hooper was not given to offering recommendations unless he was absolutely certain that his information was from his own experience. Command axiom a ship. Like a business organization, when in turbulent times, must not focus on being on course, it must focus on being seaworthy. Do not try to outrun or skirt. Head right into the storm and maintain steering. When one shows this level of confidence in another's talent and resourcefulness, it not only empowers that one, it also encourages others on the team and brings even more credibility to management for allowing such a situation to be accomplished.